0: This past year has been particularly difficult for many of us who are a part of the EPC church family. We've lost loved ones. We've experienced marriage breakdowns. We've lost jobs. We've received significant health diagnoses. We've watched helplessly as some of our children or others we love have walked away from the faith. Challenging, difficult year for many. It's been discouraging for us personally as we experience these things firsthand and and for our families that are affected by these things as well. The Bible says that as believers, we are the body of Christ. And when one part of the community of faith, one part of the church family you know, as we're a part of that, as the body of Christ, when one suffers, we all suffer. We carry the burden collectively. We, we carry the burden together. And, and that's a joy to be able to do that, to not have to navigate this life on our own. Now, as the leader of this family, to be honest, I've, I've felt the heaviness for some time of not only the impact on each of you personally, as I've had the privilege to come alongside you and walk with you through many of these things, but on the impact that that has on us as a church family. And so as I reflected on this reality, this week in light of another significant event, I knew that it was critically important that this Sunday be one of encouragement for all of us, that that was critically important. And so throughout the week, honestly, I wrestled so much, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I'm going I'm to preach this passage and then, no, I don't really, I don't really feel that like, because I'm Maybe I'm an odd, an oddity when it comes to preaching, but I don't believe the role of the preacher is just to preach the word of God and, and, and that if you just preach it, it's, it's, it's okay. I mean, I believe that God's word always has an impact, but I'm sort of of the school that believes that God has a word for a place, for an hour, in a moment, in a season, And I've always tried to be faithful to that. So I'm wrestling that through. God, what is it you want to say to us this week? And as I wrestled through all of the wonderful ideas that I thought would be great, in my heart, I just kept getting pulled back to a passage that I preached here five years ago, entitled, Defeating Discouragement. And so eventually, after about three days of wrestling, I finally gave in. So I'm going to bring that a passage to you this morning. All of us experience moments of discouragement, moments when something really significant goes wrong, moments when it seems like everything is going wrong. And we know that discouragement is very destructive. It can destroy our faith. It can destroy our lives. So it's important for us to learn how we can defeat discouragement. Now, it's true that it is critically important to be surrounded with encouraging people. I mean, none of us want to be surrounded with people who are negative and discouraging. Worst thing that can happen to us when we're discouraged. We want to be around positive, encouraging people. Really important. It's important in difficult times to be with family. That's not always easy either. It's important for us to have a church community, to stand together. It's important to be a positive person. It's important to believe for something better. It's important to have a positive outlook. These things are all important. But as important as all of these things are, these things in themselves will not be enough to help us in times of our deepest discouragement. As good as they are, as necessary as they are, they're not enough to help us in our deepest discouragement. Ultimately, in times of deep discouragement, we need to learn how to encourage ourselves in the Lord. We need to learn how to find our strength in God. And so today we're going to consider the story of David in a place called Ziklag, which is an excellent model, an example for us for defeating discouragement. And so let's read together First Samuel chapter thirty. We're just going to read the three verses. If you have like a Bible with real pages, you can keep it open. If you don't, you can scroll for the rest of it. If you want to look at it, it says David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and the Ziglag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. And when David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captive. I want us to consider this story for a few moments this morning and end with some things that may be able to help us in our times of discouragement that we see in this passage. Let's look at the context of the scripture Saul is the king of Israel. And as we read his story, we find that he's an insecure leader, he's a sinful leader, and he is jealous of David, who he knows God has anointed to be his successor. And so he's determined that he's going to find David, and he's going to kill him. And so there's a manhunt going on all over Israel, which as you know, is not a large geographical country. And so David had been on the run from Saul for quite some time at the point of this passage and the goal of being on the run was just stay alive to outmaneuver Saul to outthink him to escape from from him and his men and all those who would who would try to carry out Saul's desire of killing David now there became a problem after a while and the problem was he's running out of hiding places in Israel there's nowhere left to go and so he decided to hide where Saul couldn't find him amongst Israel's enemy, the Philistines. He thought, if I go to the enemy's area and I, and I live there, he'll never think to look for me there. And so the Philistine king gave David, his men, their families, and their livestock, a place to live called Ziklag. And so David and his 600 men, fighting men, strong warriors, their families and their livestock, lived in Ziklag for 16 months. And during this time, he had the favor of the king. David and his men during these 16 months fought a lot of battles, not with the Philistines, not with Saul, but with another enemy in the area called the Amalekites. And every time David and his men would fight them, David would be victorious. And he was known even amongst the Philistines that he and his men were were strong and mighty warriors. And so when the time came that the Philistines were getting ready to go to war, they were getting ready to fight against Saul and Israel. David and his men felt obligated to fight with them. It was the honorable thing to do. It was the right thing to do. After all, the Philistine king had done so much for them. He'd given them land. He'd given them a safe place to hide. They felt indebted to him. And on top of all of that, they were fighting, would be fighting a common enemy in Saul. And so David and his men traveled with the Philistine army. But there was a problem. The Philistine army commanders were uncomfortable with this arrangement. They didn't want to fight alongside them. They didn't trust them. They're foreigners. How do we know? Maybe in the middle of the battle, they're spies and they're going to turn on us and they're going to kill us. We don't trust them. And so even though the king trusted them to accommodate his commanders, he met with David and said, listen, you know what, guys, I need you to I need you to go back. This is not going to work. Thank you, but it's just not going not to work out. And so they began the three-day journey back home. We're told that in their absence, in the meantime, the Amalekites that they had fought on many occasions attacked Ziglag in their absence. They raided it. They took everything that they could find, and what they couldn't take with them, they burned to the ground. They took their wives, they took their children, they took the elderly, and they carried them away into slavery. And so David and his men, they're returning home, they're looking forward to seeing their families. In their mind, this is a great turn of events. Everything is going great. We don't have to fight. We don't have to risk our lives. We don't have to be away for an extended period of time from our families. This is a good day. We're going home. But what they didn't realize was that the smoke that was rising from Ziglag was not the smoke of the cooking fires. It was the smoke of utter destruction left behind by the Amalekites. Secondly, response. As they stood there and they surveyed the landscape, the reality of what had taken place began to sink in. They're in shock. Everything that meant anything... To them was gone. It was all gone. Their sons were gone. Their daughters were gone. Their wives were gone. Their parents were gone. Their livestock, their livelihood, all their belongings, everything gone. And we're told these mighty fighting men began to weep out loud. To cry out with tears and intense emotion. That's the language there. These fighting men are standing on the scorched earth and their tears are flowing down their faces. And they're just venting intense emotion as they take in what has taken place in their absence. It says they wept until they had no more strength left to weep. They're emotionally exhausted. They had emptied themselves of emotion. Then we're told their weeping gave way to bitterness, anger, discouragement, because they were convinced that they're never going to see their families again. And then bitterness led to blame. David was their leader. He'd led them away. The Philistines, it was his fault they were absent when the Amalekites attacked. He was responsible for what had happened in their absence. They lost confidence in their leadership. They didn't believe in it anymore. They gave up on him. And they decided not only did they not believe in him and they were going to blame him, but they said, let's stone him to death. Let's kill him for what has happened here. It's his fault. Rather than fight the enemy, they began fighting amongst themselves. Now, we need to notice that David's response is different than the response of his men. He has all the same losses. He's walking through the same circumstance. It's his reality as much as it's theirs. Yet in the midst of the distress and in the midst of the discouragement, the scripture tells us that David encouraged himself in the Lord. He didn't wait for someone else to encourage him. This is not a demonstration of the power of positive thinking. But it's a demonstration of the strength of God that comes to a life that is broken and discouraged. How was it possible that all of the others could stand there and become angry and become bitter and start blaming one another while this other one person could find strength in the Lord? How was it possible? Prayer. It was prayer. David said, bring me the ephod. The ephod is is like a vest or an apron that the priests would wear as part of their garments when they functioned in the capacity of intercession between God and the Israelite people. And so David said, bring me the ephod, the symbol of intercession. And as the priest would normally stand between God and the people, David is now standing between a group of men who have become bitter and who have become blameful and who are crumbling and have lost everything. And God, and he begins, it says, he inquired of the Lord. He consulted God. He said, God, I need your direction. I need your counsel. I need you to be the one who is directing this. I need to hear from you. And he says, should I pursue or should I just leave it? And if I pursue, will I win or will it be devastation? And we read in the scripture that God responded to David with a command and a promise. The command was, he said, yes, you must pursue. And the promise was, yes, you will certainly Succeed. Action. Once David consulted God, he was able to inspire the others to join with him. Isn't it amazing how when someone can trust your ability to know the voice of God, how that can change a situation? And so they decided to join with him. They knew this was not just David's instructions. This was not their own initiative. This was not a good idea. This was a God idea. It was a directive from God. Now, I want us to notice that they actually had no idea where to even to begin to look for their families. They didn't know where they'd gone. And so they just randomly set out. Just, they just started walking, believing that eventually if God said that they, would, they, would, they should do it and they would win, that if they just got moving, that somehow it's going to work out. And so they're randomly setting out. And as they're randomly walking around, they found a man, an Egyptian slave, starving in the field. The Amalekites had had him as a slave and he'd become sick and they didn't have the time or the patience to deal with him. He was of no value to him, to them as a sick slave. And so they just left him in the field to die. And so David and his men, they found him. They gave him food and they gave him water and he he regained his strength and his health. And he said, well, I know where the Amalekites are. I was, I was with them. I know, I know where the camp is. I know where they were headed with your families. I can, I can show you. And so David and his men, led by this random Egyptian slave they found in the field, all, of course, God directing all of this, found the camp. And there's a party going on. Hell likes to do that. <laughs> They're eating, they're drinking, and they're celebrating because they were successful today. They were successful today. They, they were able to destroy the place where David and his men who had defeated them so many times was camped. They had their wives. They had their children. They had the parents, the livestock. They had destroyed everything. This was a good day for them. This was success. And David and his men are waiting on the perimeter, and it says they waited till dawn. All night long, the Amalekites were drinking, and now they're sleeping and they're hungover. And David and his men attack. There are some things about how the attack goes down that I think are critically important for us when we look at the battle. The first thing I want us to see here is that they fought together. David didn't go alone to retrieve what was stolen. They went as a unit. They went together. They were all in it together. The second thing about the battle I want you to see is that they fought, it says, for a long time. It was not a quick battle. It wasn't an easy battle. Even though these men had been partying all night, they still put up a good fight. They fought all day, it says, and all night. But they endured until the end. And the third thing I want us to see is they fought for those who didn't have any strength left to fight. There were some of the men who became overwhelmed. They were exhausted emotionally, physically. They couldn't go any, any further exhausted. And so those who could fought for those who couldn't. And when the dust settled, everything, that had been stolen was recovered. It says nothing was missing. In fact, it says they ended up with more things than they had before. But then a debate transpired amongst the men. And the 400 of the fighting men who fought the battle didn't want to share with the 200 exhausted men. Why should they get any of the spoil? We're the ones who fought. We're the ones who realized the victory. It should all be ours. But David intervened. And he made it clear. The victory wasn't ours. The victory was God's. And so the share for the one who was too exhausted to fight is going to be the same as those of us who fought. And they divided it equally. And we're told David returned to Ziglag with his family, his livestock, his belongings, his men, and all their things. David had defeated the enemy and discouragement through the strength that he found in God. So, or better, so what? I want to end this morning by identifying. Some simple truths about defeating discouragement that are found, I believe, in this biblical account. The first, expect the unexpected. Like David and his men, most of us are living our lives. We're doing our best. We're living for God. We're trying to honor him. We're trying to to live right. And while focusing on doing the honorable things and living the best we can, the enemy of our soul ambushes us. And he robs our joy, our peace, our strength, our hope, our future, our dreams, our marriages, our families, our children, our health. And we're left hurting and we're left confused and disappointed and overwhelmed because it just seemingly came out of nowhere and it's so destructive because what matters most to us, what we hold most dear in this life is either slipping away or gone. And the truth is we're often unprepared when discouraging times come because we're not anticipating them. We're not. Now, I'm not suggesting you become a negative person. I'm not anticipating that and, and saying that you should be Eeyore and expect the worst and, you know, low expectation, minimal disappointment. If I live my life with that mantra, then I'll never be let down. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to be aware that there is an enemy of our soul who, does, who wants to destroy us. There is an enemy that wants to destroy our families. The Bible says he's like a, a lion who goes around seeking who he can devour. And we need to come to grips with that reality. And we need to live our lives in a way that we are prepared to do battle against him. Now, maybe in the middle of it, we ask, God, how could you let this happen to me? How could you let this happen to my family? I'm faithful. I put my trust in you. I'm doing my best to live the way you've asked. I'm making sacrifices for you. I want you to know this morning that sometimes the more faithful you are, the greater the attack of the enemy Because if your life is not a threat to the kingdom of darkness, he doesn't have time for you. But if your life has significance and meaning and is making an impact, look around at the people who are most significantly impacted and most of the time it's those people who are giving more of themselves than others. Sometimes the more faithful you are, the greater the attack of the enemy. And on top of that, we live in a spiritually broken and sinful world. We try to explain to people, we try to to make explanations, but folks, we are simply living in a sinful, broken world where people die and children are abused and cancer takes lives and so on and so forth. It's a broken, sinful world that Jesus died to redeem and will redeem in its fullness when he returns. But in the meantime, we live in a broken, sinful place. And because of that, we need to expect the unexpected. Secondly, allow yourself to be real. When what is important to us is lost, when those we love are impacted, the natural response is to weep. Many of us have known the experience of weeping before the Lord. Many in this room have had the experience of lying in your bed at night and your tears are wetting your pillow. You know that experience. Many of us have wept till there's no strength left to weep. That we're emotionally exhausted. We're empty. Many of us have been there. We've been through that. And the grieving process is so important. And that's why it bothers me when super spiritual people try to advise us to move on, suck it up, God is good all the time, blah, 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 blah. No, cry, grieve, feel. Feel. Let me tell you something. The last thing a person who's lost a loved one who loved Jesus needs to hear from you is your theological take on why they're gone. If the day ever comes that you have to say that to me, walk over and say, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm praying for you. Don't give me a theological explanation. Bad timing, bad theology. Don't need to hear it. God has given us a grieving process. We don't stop halfway through the verse that says we do not grieve. No, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. We still grieve because God created the grieving process for us to help us through the journey of loss and change and discouragement. There's nothing wrong with being real. There's nothing wrong with being broken and sad. There's not, God is not offended when you question him. I know this because He and I have had this conversation in the one million times that I've questioned him. Grieving and weeping is an important part of the grieving process. Whether we grieve, if that's right or wrong, that's not even an issue. What matters is where does our weeping take us? And it becomes our problem. If our grieving takes us to bitterness and anger, if that's where grieving takes us, we're in complicated grief, we're in trouble. If our grieving leads us to blame, we're in trouble. See, often there's a need within us to place, place the blame somewhere. I often jokingly say that's why we get married. You have a built-in person to blame for everything. And when that kind of gets old, you get a dog. and you blame the dog. You blame your kids. You, you got to blame somebody, right? You got to blame somebody. Someone has to be responsible. So who are you blaming? Maybe you're blaming God. Or maybe you're blaming your church family or your spouse or your children or your friend or your employer. Maybe you're even blaming yourself. Allow yourself to be real. Grieve. But be careful that your grieving doesn't take you to harmful places. Third, encourage yourself in the Lord. It's important to have people in our lives who encourage us. I have a few of those. I Can't tell you what they mean to me. People who pray for us. People who stand with us. Those people are important to us. But the truth is, here's a reality and I've experienced it and I try to prepare others for it as well. People stand with us, but over time, People stop checking in as often. I see this mostly with when we lose a loved one and all of a sudden there's too much food and there's too many flowers. And everybody's around. But about three or four weeks down the road when the reality of what's happened is starting to hit the person who lost the loved one, the rest of us have gone back to our lives. We're not bad people. That's just the way it is. Over time, people stop checking in on us. They stop bringing things by. Over time, sometimes people stop believing in us. Some stop supporting us. Sometimes when you're in crises, people disappoint you because the ones that you expected that were your closest friends or closest to you, all of a sudden they don't know what to do with this and they disappear. And the person that you didn't expect at all has been your greatest strength. These are the realities of human nature when it comes to To going through difficult times. David had 200 men who couldn't go forward because they were exhausted. They had gone as far as they could go. Folks, there are many people who start the journey with us, but they won't complete the journey with us. They won't make it. They're not gonna stay there with us. They give up. They can't keep going. They have nothing more to give. It might be your spouse. And that gets really frustrating. You're thinking, I need to keep moving, but you, you've given up. Maybe it's your kids or your friends or you perceive it to be your church. My point is this. We can't depend on others for our emotional well-being. We get married because we want that person to make me happy. They can contribute to my happiness, but it's not my wife's job for me to be happy. That's not her job. It's her job to contribute to it. Might want to work on that a little more. (laughs) But we can't depend on others for our emotional well-being because they will let us down. They can't do it. It's an impossible task. We need to learn to encourage ourselves and find strength in the Lord. And we do it like David did. We do it through prayer. Prayer. And we do it through the word of God and the presence of God and serving God. There's nothing more therapeutic than giving ourselves to serve in the kingdom of God. He's all we have. But ultimately, he's all we need. Tendency in times of discouragement is... To drift away from prayer and drift away from the word of God and to drift away from God and and your church family. But I'm going to tell you, if there was ever a time to lean on God in prayer and in the word and coming together with your church family, it's in times of discouragement. Fourthly, I'm almost done. Be willing to fight. Once we consult God, we must be faithful to carry out what he's asked us to do. Or in some cases, not do. The enemy is celebrating the demise of our lives and our families. There's a party going on and we need to clue into that. And we must be willing to fight. And I believe we need to fight in the pattern that David fought. We must be willing to fight together for those who are willing to stand with us. And while we ultimately need to encourage ourselves in the Lord, we do need each other. I'm not saying we don't need each other. We do. It's time to push aside our pride and admit admit that we need help. And to go into battle together. I love Leviticus 28.6. It says if we're willing to serve God. If we're willing to consult him. If we're willing to make him a priority in our lives. He says you will pursue your enemies. And they will fall by the sword before you. Five will chase a hundred. And a hundred will chase ten thousand. And your enemies will fall by the, side before, the, the sword before you. What, what is the principle here? What is God saying? Well it's simple. The more there are in the battle with you, the greater the impact of the battle. We have to do battle together. We must be prepared to battle for a long time. We're a people in a culture, a quick service. We want it really fast, really simple, convenient. That's our culture. But within the spiritual realm, the battles are not won easily and they're not won quickly. You can't give up in a short time. You just can't. And we must fight for those who have no strength left to fight. There's a lot of people that have battled for a long time. They're tired. And even though the battle is important to them, they can't seem to fight the battle anymore. And that's where we come in. We bear them up. We partner with them. We bring our strength and we battle on their behalf. And finally, see the victory as God's. When the victory comes in our lives, we need to acknowledge that God is responsible. If we fall into the trap of thinking it was us, and you know what? How many times have you cried out to God for something, and then God has come through, and you're so excited that this worked out that it's like three days later, oh, yeah, by the way, thanks, God. Right? We can develop attitudes like David's men. They didn't want to share the victory with those who gave up and couldn't fight because they said, you don't deserve it. We're the ones that won this battle and you didn't and you don't deserve it. But the reality is that anytime there is victory in our spiritual lives, that victory belongs to God. And therefore, the benefits of the victory affect all of us. When God gives the victory in our lives, many are going to benefit from it. And that's the power of testimony, you see. That's the power of testimony. When you're willing to share and testify about how God came through and did something so radically unbelievable in your life and changed your life and changed your circumstances and changed you in the process. Wow, all of a sudden you're seeing this wasn't just for my benefit. This was for the benefit of all. I'm going to invite the worship team back. Yes, discouragement can destroy our faith and our lives. It's important to learn how to defeat discouragement. It is critically important to be surrounded by encouraging people, our families, our church family. It's important to be positive, have faith, believe in a better future, have a good outlook, all important. But there will be moments when these things will not be enough we're going to need to find our strength ourselves in the Lord. This morning, I believe God gave me a beautiful gift. I woke up in the wee hours of the morning, which is not unusual for a man my age. But as I woke up very early this morning, felt prompted by the heaviness and the weight of this church family, And as I lay there, I began to pray for you. And the beautiful gift that God gave me was I could see every section and every person who normally sits there. Now, if you move around, you probably didn't get prayed for this morning. (laughs) But I just began to pray my way through, starting over here, recognizing This is what that person has gone through. This is what this one is going through. This is what they're facing. This is what they need. This is what needs to happen. And as I worked, what a time I got over here, I'm going to tell you, it was overwhelming, the weight and the burden of how much you are carrying. You know it. We know it. I know it. God knows it. But you know what? This is why when people say you don't need to go to church to be a Christian is nonsense. Because if you're going to be in relationship with Jesus, you have to be a part of his bride and his body, which is the family of God. And we are designed to do this together. And you can't do that at home watching it on the Internet. It's not the same. In fact that's why I refuse to broadcast our services live for the three people who would stay home to do it I'm not giving them the satisfaction But the point is is this we're in this together Some of you don't have anything left in the tank you're out You're still desperate, but you're out. Some of you are hurting and you're broken. Some of you can't get your head around where this is all going. It just seems so helpless and hopeless and overwhelming and painful. And so as I wrapped up that moment and I did go back to sleep, God was going to be up all night anyway. No point in both of us, right? I did come this morning and thought, I want to end this service a little different than usual. I want to end it a little more Pentecostal than we normally do. I don't mean emotional. I mean that the altar has always been a very significant space for us as Pentecostals. Historically, really not so much anymore, but historically. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning and you can do that now. But as the worship team leads... There may be some of you have to go, and I understand that. God bless you. Thank you for being here. You know, go with our blessing. We understand. But for those of you who can stay, and for those of you who are willing and want to, I wanted to open this altar, and your coming and standing here, while you're not saying anything verbally, is declaring that I recognize I need us. I need this family because I'm going through a really hard time. I lost someone I love. I'm facing difficult circumstances. There's a lot of pain in my life. I'm dealing with all kinds of things, and I just can't do it by myself. I don't want to do it by myself. I understand that God doesn't want me to do it by myself, and I'm just going to stand here with the others, and together we're going to stand here, and our very presence here is going to declare... God, you've given me this family and we're going we're to do this together. I'm not, I'm not going to carry this on my own. And we're going to encourage one another. Now, radical, I know. I know. Once in a while, you need a little radical. You just do. So maybe no one will come. Then we'll wrap it up and go eat Swiss chalet or something, whatever it is Christians do on Sunday before we nap. But I'm going to challenge you to that this morning And I'm going to challenge you to it Not because I need it Although I do I'm going to stand there with you I need it But because we need it Whether we realize it or not All of us